Good morning, good morning. I'm glad you are all here today. As Tom said, we had a very good and very exhausting week at the conference in Gladeville. Some of my favorite teachers and preachers. I came home with all of the audio, which we will be hopefully putting online, because so far the audio that I have heard is going to take some work. A tad disappointing, because Roger Skeppel just did a wonderful job this week, and David Morris, and Eddie Jacks, and just, there were just some of, like I said, some of my favorite preachers. And I, I wish the audio had been much, much better, but I'll just use all my digital wizardry to try to bring the audio back and make it listenable. As you can hear, I'm struggling with my voice this morning, did a lot of talking this week, and uh, not a small bit of singing and shouting. So turn to Second Peter, if you would. I know right where we left off. And it brings us to one of the more controversial sections of Second Peter. There are, in the sovereign grace larger world, and even, I suppose, in the Arminian larger world, there are some folks who say that if you are saved by Christ, that is so fully and completely sufficient that how you act, your behavior, just doesn't matter. And there is a debate that goes on within the Christian world and on Facebook and on other areas of social media where people argue back and forth about the relative importance of behavior among Christianity. There is a group known as the Free Grace Movement, and they believe that the sections of the Bible that concentrate on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the full sufficiency of his sacrifice, that that's really all you need to preach to people, and you don't really need to concentrate on those parts of the Bible that talk about behavior in response to that reality. However, as we're going to see this morning, Peter is going to, just like Paul does, Peter is going to say that behavior actually does matter. We saw that in 1 Peter. We're going to review just a little bit of that this morning. And then we're going to get into what Peter says we ought to do in response to the fact that God has saved us. Now, again, get the theology right. Peter says God is the one who does the saving. Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. He agrees completely and fully with what we would call Calvinistic doctrine. He believes in God's predestinary will and that he elected us before the foundation of the world. And all of that, Peter doesn't debate at all. And the opening verses in chapter 1 of 2 Peter make it obvious that he adheres to all that. But even though he adheres to all that, he then says, now be like this. And it's important for us to recognize that the now be like this is always in response to the fact that we've been saved. None of the New Testament authors say be like this to get saved. That doesn't exist in the Bible. But consistently across the board, it is 
if you know that God has done all this for you, if you know that you are saved by the finished work of Christ, if you know that your name was indeed written down before the foundation of the world and that God has chosen and elected you, well, then your behavior should be, ought to be, needs to be different than the behavior of the rest of the world. Now, also, Peter is going to put behavior into the context of making your calling and election sure. That's the King James language. It's how to make your calling and election obvious, how to make it secure. In other words, he's going to say, if you believe that you are called and elected by God, well, then prove it by acting this way. And that is the sure and certain evidence that you are different than the rest of the world, that you have been called. That leads us into another area of controversy because John MacArthur, in his Lordship Salvation writing and theology, says that your behavior is evidence of your salvation. And then people got very upset with him for saying that. And again, the controversy arose. But let's be real, in this day and age, with social media and everything else, you can say virtually nothing about the Bible without somebody else saying, yeah, but, but what about this? And I disagree, and I have an opinion, and I know something too, and hey, what about me? And so it's natural that these controversies arise. But what you're going to see is that Peter places your behavior in the category of genuine security and guarantee of your election. And you just can't avoid that. It's just how he puts it. Now, at the same time also, uh, now at the same time also, I have another thought. (laughs) Now, at the same time also, we also have to always remember the context of Peter's writing because Peter is writing to the diaspora. He is writing to believing Jews who are scattered out of Jerusalem living in the Gentile world. Since you're right there at the beginning of 2 Peter, turn backwards in 1 Peter to chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2.12, you will recall, says... Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That word, excellence, is the same word that he uses in 2 Peter chapter 1 when talking about God's glory and excellence. But then he's going to say that you should add to your faith, you should supply moral excellence. And he's going to use that same word again. So he's saying God has an excellency to himself, and so the way you behave ought to reflect the excellency of God, even in the moral issues of life. So 1 Peter again, chapter 2, verse 12 says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, because they were scattered out among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Go forward in 1 Peter to chapter 3. He'll get into all the modes of godly living and godly 
behavior. But then in chapter 4, he gets into, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh ceases from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer after the lusts of men, but after the will of God. See, that's that same concept of moral excellence. Keep your mind and your behavior in league with what you confess. Verse 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. So what is Peter saying? Now that you're Christian, you're different. Your behavior has changed. You no longer act the way the Gentiles act. You have now pursued this excellency, this moral character that he has talked about. By verse 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So this is thematic to what Peter has written in both epistles. The idea that if you are Christian, if you are blood-bought, if it is true and you know it that God elected you since before the foundation of the world, then your behavior really ought to reflect that. And Peter is going to go so far in this epistle as to say, if you act like that, It shows for certain, it secures, it guarantees that you are indeed the elect of God because you're acting that way. The non-elect, the world, would not act that way. And in fact, he's going to call out the believers who don't act that way and say, you're blind. You have forgotten everything Jesus did for you. He forgave your sins. He has secured you with the Father, so therefore you ought to act, you ought to behave in a way that reflects that, and if you don't, you're blind. You've become ignorant. You have forgotten the realities of who you are and what has been done for you. So he really is driving home the behavior thing. So let's start reading at 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 1. Right at the start, and we're going to see Peter, as we talked about two weeks ago, lay out the basic theology of salvation. And he's going to give all the credit and all the glory to God. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and, there's that word I've already mentioned, his excellence. For by these, by his glory and by his excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by those promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped 
the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, see what Peter has done? The first four verses, he has laid out the fact that God, by himself, granted you not only faith, but everything necessary for life and godliness. Now, knowing that about yourself, for this reason, be like this. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence, that means get to work on it. Apply it seriously. Don't take it casually. Don't think it's just going to happen. You have to really apply yourself to this. Applying all diligence to your faith or in your faith, supply moral excellence. There's that same word, the exact same word, the arete that you find in Greek is used both times by Peter to speak of excellence. God is excellent, therefore, to your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, let's talk about this word supply, because it's a really interesting word. The Greek word is epikorageo. Epi is a prefix that just has to do with upon or placement. But the korageo part of the word is the word from which we get English words like chorus and choreography. Now, if you had a chorus, and of course you're probably familiar with the idea within classical Greek of a Greek chorus, a Greek chorus in a play were the people who would come out and kind of explain what's happening in the play, during the play. And it was usually a number of people. Oftentimes, members of the chorus would wear a mask so that they could point out the failures of the different actors. Even though you didn't know who that person behind the mask was, they could tell you the failures of the other person. That person was known as the hypocrite because he wore a mask and pointed out other people's failings. And so within a chorus, whoever assembled the chorus, the chorus master, was responsible to provide everything necessary for the chorus. So oftentimes the chorus master would supply a place to live and food for the day, and as well as the lyrics and the things that they would say. So whether we're talking about a speaking chorus, a performing chorus, a singing chorus, the chorus master was responsible to supply for them, the same way that a choreographer supplies the dance steps to the people who are dancing. Well, that would be to the dancers. And so that word has moved into our language without carrying that idea of supply with it, but because in ancient Greek culture, the person in charge of the chorus also had to supply for the chorus, that word, that epikorigeo, has become translated as supply. And Peter uses it very cleverly here. Instead of you expecting someone else to supply for you, you supply for you. You diligently make sure that you supply these things to your faith in Christ. And he says, to your faith, supply moral excellence. And to your moral excellence, knowledge. Now, that's just the Greek word gnosis. 
when speaking about the knowledge of God, the NASB translates it true knowledge because it's epinosis. It's the highest form of knowledge, a more complete knowledge. But to us, we're just told to supply to our faith and to our moral excellence knowledge, knowledge of God. Now, where are you going to achieve knowledge of godly things? Through the Bible, through his word. And so pay attention, spend time in the word. That way you're going to supply knowledge to your faith. Notice also that Peter doesn't think that just faith is adequate. You also have to have Faith that is based in godly knowledge, the knowledge of the word. It's not enough to just say, I believe Jesus. I made a profession once when I was a child, so I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven, and that's all I need to know. I don't need to know any more than that. I know Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me, so I don't need to know any more than that. That's good. Peter says, no, to your faith, add knowledge, gnosis, understanding, and you only get that through that steady diet of reading and absorbing the word of God. In fact, it's, it's almost axiomatic. How many of you know more about God and what he accomplished for you now than you knew when you started in this Christian journey? Yeah, it's just automatic. It's just obvious. By the way, how many of you hate it when I ask you to raise your hand? <laughs> That worked. (laughs) Pretty much every hand went up. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence. And to your moral excellence, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, as you grow in your knowledge of God and what he did for you, to that knowledge, add self-control. Now, that's very much like Peter saying, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't go to the drinking parties. Don't go out carousing. Don't do all that stuff. Instead, control yourself. Control your lusts. Control your excesses. Now, just this morning, I came across an article that was arguing for free will and arguing that human beings have the capacity to by their own will make themselves better. And they quoted that verse and said, why would Peter say to your knowledge add self-control if you didn't have the free will ability to add control to yourself? So since Peter is advocating for add self-control, you must have the ability to add self-control. Let me help you out here for just a moment. Left to yourself, left to the way you were, left to your sinful, depraved, natural state, you would not have any self-control. That's the problem with the unbelieving world, the lack of self-control. That's why so many things are going on in the world that we look at and go, what is this? This is crazy. It wasn't like this when I was a kid. Why? Because the lack of self-control in the world is obvious and growing exponentially. Only if you have the Spirit of God can Peter say to you, now add to your faith moral excellence and knowledge and self-control. 
because only by the Spirit of God would you even be interested in doing that. You would have no interest in self-control. You would want the lust of your flesh nonstop constantly. So Peter says, to your knowledge add self-control. Self-control is mentioned after knowledge, which makes knowledge of God a prerequisite. Yeah. And the knowledge of God will lead to self-control. Why? Because the knowledge of God's word, like we're reading right now, shows you that God's word expects you to control yourself. And so the greater knowledge of God, I would even argue, I think, and this will probably be controversial, and yes, I'll get emails. But I would say that even among those theologies that just concentrate on the finished work of Christ and say nothing about your behavior, I would say they're being like that, teaching that, acting like that, because they don't have sufficient knowledge of the Bible. If they had greater knowledge of the whole counsel of God, they would realize that the whole counsel of God says, control yourself and pay attention to your behavior. Yes, ma'am. And is it true the same idea that it has to tell us which sins we can't commit because we have to hear that the same way we have to hear have self-control because in our natural self we wouldn't. We just wouldn't. That's right. Did you understand Megan's question? I've argued for a long time that nowhere in the Bible does it say to you, remember to breathe because <laughs> you're just going to. That's, that doesn't have to be said. But everything that is said in the Bible is said because it has to be said. Which is why the Bible says things like, now don't commit adultery. Because people have to be told that. Don't murder each other. We got to be told that. Don't steal stuff that's not yours. Like errant children with no self-control. We have to be told that. In the same way, Peter here, my daughter is arguing, Peter here is saying, supply self-control because we just wouldn't do that naturally we have to be told think about your behavior yes Joni all the way back there or is your hand still up from from earlier so Uh, we're told in the Bible that even our enemies, if they're thirsty, give them a glass of water. Okay? So is there anybody in the world who could see a thirsty man and also give them a glass of water? Sure. Sure, yeah. The, the behavior would be the same behavior. What would be the difference? We'd be doing it out of obedience to what God has told us to do. They'd be doing it as a way of lifting themselves up, look at me, look what a good person I am. Look. So the difference is, what's the motivation? What's in your heart? Why are you being like that? You're right that people can exercise a certain amount of self-control in order to make money or eat healthy or that kind of thing, but why are they doing it? it to lengthen their own life, to make themselves richer. Those are their motivations. Here Peter is saying, let the fact that God has saved you be the motivation for you to act better. See the difference? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Peter, one of them, some of them said I would never have known what coveting was except God told him not. Right. Paul was going through his life happily coveting, didn't know he was coveting, 
until God's word said, don't covet. Then he realized that that was something not to do. Right. All right, so that's to your knowledge, add self-control. And to your self-control, perseverance. Now, that's really different for us thinking today than, boy, that was a bad sentence, than it was to first century Jews living outside of Jerusalem. They were persecuted regularly. They were made fun of regularly. And so not only were they Jews who were hated by the Gentiles, but they're also Jews who have accepted Jesus as Messiah, so they're also hated by the Roman government and Roman dominion. And so pretty much every way they turn they're being persecuted. And so Peter is saying, despite that, even though it would be easy to just say, I'm not part of that. I didn't do that. I don't believe that anymore. Forget it. Even though the easier path would be to deny Christianity, he's saying, persevere in it. Stay in the faith. To your faith, add that perseverance that gets you through this life that patience, that confidence that God knows what he's doing in your life. So persevere through it. Now, to us here today, persecution among Christians seems to be growing again. And so the same admonition would be true for us, that to our faith and to our knowledge and to our moral excellence, that we should also add perseverance, stay with the faith, don't back away from the faith just to make it easier on yourself. And to your perseverance, as you persevere in the faith, to your perseverance, add godliness, good behavior based in, like I was just saying to Joni, Good behavior based in godliness, godly awareness, consciousness of God, and what God would expect you to be like in this world. So your behavior is all based in your knowledge of God. And your godliness, to your godliness, then add brotherly kindness. That's the word Philadelphia. And it means... I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It means brotherly goodness, recognizing people as brothers and then being kind, being good, being loving to them. But not stopping there, Peter then says, and to your brotherly kindness, add agape, add sacrificial love. So just like he said in his previous letter, In the end, it's all about being diligent as you grow in this Christian walk, as you grow in your knowledge of God, as your life is conformed to what it is you believe, then finally it leads to, and ultimately it leads to, not only brotherly kindness where you're putting up with each other and long-suffering with each other for Christ's sake, but that you actually have agape love for one another because that is the fruit of the Spirit. Make sense? Yes, okay, now does it sound like Peter is saying, if you're genuinely Christian, be different? Yes, yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. And it's unavoidable that that's what he's saying. It's unavoidable that he's saying, now knowing that you are saved, be different. Not just act different than the Gentiles, But we can apply this to the whole of the Christian church, I believe, and say, if you are, in fact, elect of God, it certainly ought to show. It ought to be demonstrated in the way you live, in the way you treat 
not only your enemies, but especially the way you treat your brethren and your sisterin and your cousin. And okay. Okay, so now Peter's going to talk about those qualities starting in verse 8. He says, because if these qualities are yours and are increasing, in other words, in this Christian walk, you never reach the point where you can say, okay, I got that. I pretty much got that love thing, that knowledge thing. I got that self-control, perfect, I'm fine. He says, no, you're going to grow in that. You're going to increase in that through your Christian life and walk. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the epinosis, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the true knowledge that he mentioned earlier as being the true knowledge of God, you're going to prove that you really understand what you've read in the Bible by the word of God. You're going to prove that by the way you live, by the way you behave, by the way you control yourself, by the way you love one another, by the way you care about the word of God, by the way that you keep looking into what God has and you grow in the knowledge of what God has and what God has done and what God has accomplished and what God planned, all of that is going to increasingly lead you to bearing fruit. So you won't be useless or unfruitful in this Christian walk. So Peter's position is that God intends for you to be like this. He intends for you to bear fruit. He intends for you not to be useless. So therefore, showing all diligence, make sure you act like this. Do you get the argument? Because now he's going to go further and say, because that's proof that you are elect. If you don't have that, he says, you're blind. Verse 9 says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So when Christ died and he purified you from the sins you used to live by, remember the list that we looked at earlier, you used to carouse, you used to run around, you used to go to drinking parties, you used to hang out with the Gentiles. Now that you're in Christ, you're not like that. They can't believe that you're not like that anymore. They want you to come and join them. They're going to persecute you for that, make fun of you for not being like that. And if you don't hold on to faith and to knowledge and to self-control, if you don't hang on to the moral excellency that is expected in Christianity, then you've actually forgotten who it was that saved you and what he did in order to save you. You've reached the point where you've gone back to your own pride, your own ego, and you've thought, I can do these things again. I can be like that again. I can act like the world again. I can run around and carouse again. And Peter says, you've forgotten what happened. Christ died for you. Be different. Here, let me put it this way. I think this example works. Chase? Yeah, I know I woke you up. Um, <laughs> last night at April's party, you were um, at one point running. You were running through here, okay? I do that a lot of my Yeah, you do a lot of running, I'm sure. You've got way too much energy 
and I can't remember what that was like. <laughs> and so you were running, and Steve and Luann instantly said, hey, hey, stop that. Stop that running, right? Yeah, Grandma and Grandpa right on you. Boom, stop that. Okay, now was it you that was climbing on the chairs back here? Oh, yeah. You were up on the mountain of chairs? Okay. When you were up on the mountain of chairs, I looked around. I saw you. I didn't say a word. Your grandfather right away said to you, get down from there. Okay. What's the difference between your grandpa's reaction and my reaction? I looked, and you were up there, and I didn't care. You might fall and break your neck. Huh. And... <laughs> I know. I know. Why didn't I immediately say, stop the running. Quit it, young man. You have too much energy. Stop that. Why did it take your grandma to say that to you? You know why? Because you're hers. You're not mine. Not my child. Now, I've raised my children to be a certain way, and I have told them time and time again when they have come and said to me, why, why do I have to do that? I say, because you live under my roof. It's my house. These are my rules. And if you want to know why or you disagree, go live somewhere else. But as long as you're under my roof and I'm your dad, you'll be a certain way because you're mine. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I expected a certain behavior out of my children because they're mine. They are a reflection of me. If we came to church and my children were constantly acting up, at some point you all would quite rightly say, what's wrong with Jim as a father that he lets his children be like this? It's a reflection on me and my parenting ability, and those that belong to me. Okay, same deal with God. Same deal. You belong to God. You reflect the fact that you belong to God. Therefore, you ought to act the way God has determined you would act. You ought to apply all diligence to acting that way. Why? Not to get saved. You're already saved. Peter has already said that. That is why he could even say, if you've forgotten all this, And you're not acting like that. He didn't say, you're not saved. He said, you have forgotten that you're saved. You have forgotten that you've been purified in the price that was paid for you. And so those people who belong to God, who are the saved, ought to behave in a way that reflects godliness and reflects the knowledge of God and reflects on God out here in the world in a positive way. I can remember people saying to me, I'm going to use me as the example. I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I've heard that. Yeah. In fact, it's you that said it. No, I'm sorry. I don't know. Okay, I thought you were supposed. Okay, that's the world's expectation. The world expects. You're Christian. You're supposed to represent Christ better than that. God's expectation is, you're mine, you're supposed to represent me better than that. Christ's expectation is, I died for you, I purified you, I paid for your sin debt, now I expect you to behave better than that. And Peter argues that when you behave like that, and 
And that knowledge and that moral excellence and that brotherly love, when that's growing in you, that is sure and certain proof that the election of God is alive and well in your life. You get the argument? Because I think it's pretty off-putting to hear somebody say, I know I'm the elect of God, and then they live like heck. And you think, how can you think you're saved and act like that? Yes, ma'am. You know, in Ephesians, it said that Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might purify her through the washing of the word. Yeah. I would say when we neglect the word, then that shows on our behavior. I'm just going to tell you something from my experience. I agree with you completely. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to put it out here as boldly as I possibly can. You can agree or disagree. And if you disagree, the door is right there. And I have watched it 17 years now. 17 years I've been standing up here at the front of this room. 17 years I have watched people come in, listen to the word week after week. And seeing them change for the better. You start to see them growing in their Christianity. And then they start neglecting to show up here. And they neglect to be under the word. And they're missing Sundays. They're missing Wednesdays. They don't make any men's meetings or women's meetings. They don't make, they have no connection with the church. And I'm thinking of somebody real specific right now who ended up in a very culty self-help deal Because he drifted away so far from the word because, I believe, he quit placing himself under the word. Now, granted, he just showed what he really was. We could make goat, dog, and pig analogies if we wanted to. But the truth of the matter is, if you're going to grow in the knowledge of God and in your moral excellence and in your love for each other, you need to be here. You need to be under the word. You need to be in fellowship with other saints. Because left to yourself, you will drift. And some of you know what it's like where you you miss a Sunday and then you say, "Ah, I've missed one, I can miss two, there's no problem, my faith is secure. Well, and then it's a month and then it's two months. And then you start thinking, I got to get back to church. There are people who used to be here if everybody stayed here, whoever came here, I don't know where we'd put them all. Right, that's right. Yeah. But folks like Conrad and Marilyn that have been here a long time have seen people come and go. Tom, who's been here since the beginning, Jeff, who's been here since the beginning, have seen people come and go. And then I kind of keep up with them as much as I can. And now I see some of them on social media, and I think, that's not Christian. Let's not even pretend Christian because they have drifted away from the word and their natural, fleshly, lustful tendencies have overtaken them. I'm telling you, stay in the word, stay in the word, stay in the word and stay in fellowship and stay in church. Keep yourself secure under the covering of God, under the covering of his word, under the covering of Christ, even if, Peter says, even if You are saved by Christ. You can go back into the world and you'll end up forgetting all this stuff. 
And then you know what God has to do? He has to correct you and bring you back and make you remember. And that process ain't fun. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I know what it's like for God to correct you and bring you back on the path because he expects a certain level of behavior out of you simply because you're his. And because you belong to him one way or the other, you're going to act like you belong to him. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm telling you, I'll tell you as strongly as I can tell you, and I'm not saying this for my ego. I'm not saying this for my self-satisfaction. I would stand up here and preach as I think I have proven through the years. I'll preach to three people. I've done it before. I'll do it again. As long as I have breath, I'm going to keep preaching the word. But you need to be here. You need to be under the word. You need to be in fellowship with the saints. Because the whole rest of the week, you're out there with the world. The whole rest of the week, you're out there among the heathen. You need to spend time here among the godly. Anyway, end of lecture. Yes, ma'am. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and we're supposed to present ourselves as a sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, some people, that, that two hours on Sunday, that, that's too big a sacrifice. <laughs> Therefore, brethren, since he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Okay, now he's talked about diligence twice in about five verses. Be all the more diligent. To make certain, boy, he's, he's really driving this point. Be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So if you walk around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm the elect of God, act like it. That's the summation of the whole thing. Be diligent to act like it. Make your calling and election Sure, make your calling and election certain by demonstrating that you're acting like and living like the called and elect of God. That's Peter's point. Look at verse 11, though. We're going to start reading at 10 so you can hear Peter's whole sentence. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, in what way? In this way of behavior, in this way of Christian growth. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So he even ties it together to the eschatological end. And says, not only does it make your calling and election sure and certain, but it also guarantees your entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. 
Now, of course, to the believing Jews in the first century, that language of kingdom resonated differently than it does for us, because they still have the expectation of the messianic kingdom to come. When Christ comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom. He, as David's greater son, is going to rule from Jerusalem, sitting on David's throne. All of that is part of the messianic hope for the Jews. We've lost some of that sense since we're 21st century Gentiles, and when we read the language of eternal kingdom, we think, well, heaven, or maybe we think New Jerusalem, but to the Jews, the kingdom that belongs to Israel is a vital and important part of their eschatological hope. And so Peter says, you're going to enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that's going to be abundantly supplied to you if you act like this. Got it? And I think that's all saying, if you represent Christ here on the planet, while you're here among the Gentiles, while you're here among the sinners, represent God, represent Christ, and in that way, you're looking forward to the glorious kingdom to come. Yes, sir? I agree with your interpretation of this, but I can see why this verse creates problems for people because it's about halfway to what we read in James, maybe three-fourths of the way to what we read in James because it talks about behavior and traditionally people who believe in predestination like we do have had problems knowing whether they were elect or not. And so they, you know, verses like this made them look at their behavior and pretty soon you're saying it's how I act rather than was I elect from before the foundations of the world were laid. That's why it's important to read the whole context and why I've been stressing the whole context, because Peter started with God has supplied everything necessary for life and godliness. God granted you like precious faith as mine. So it's all God did, God did, God did. And so the behavioral aspects are a response to the knowledge of what God did. You're exactly right that if you get that backwards, then you end up with people saying, it's all behavior-based. you got to be a certain way in order to be saved. But Peter doesn't do it. Paul doesn't do it. Paul talks a lot about behavior, but it's always predicated on you're saved, so behave like that. I think we have more certainty about that we're saved and therefore free to act as God would have us act. And, and, and whereas 400 years ago, <clears throat> the Calvinists went around nervous as cats about whether they were really saved or not. I think there's some truth to that. But also the reformer Calvinists, especially the Geneva and Dutch version of it, had a tendency to bring a lot of law forward because they were covenantalists. And so there was a combining of law in the grace language. So while I agree entirely with their basic soteriology of how people get saved, their general attitude towards life and ecclesiology was all based in the legalism of the Old Testament. And that's bound to add or contribute to your nervous as cat's feeling because it is all conditional. So I would argue, agreeing with you, that we know that we're saved. 
we're confident that we're saved. We believe in everything Christ accomplished and that he's a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. We get that. And so that's not in question. That's the basis for the rest of the discussion about behavior. That way, they both stay in the right categories, and we don't end up saying your behavior saves you. Jesus saves, but knowing that Jesus saves, behavior then becomes part of what it is to be a Christian on planet Earth. Make sense? Yeah. Yes, sir. Another way when you say, we know we're saved, you can say that as, we know who we are. And because we know that, and the only reason we know who we are is because what Christ has done. Exactly. And I think that's the basis of Peter's argument. Because remember, he said, if you don't act like this, you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that your sins were washed away. You, you forgot what Christ did for you. You're blind. You're short-sighted. So I agree with you entirely. We are so secure in the finished work of Christ and our knowledge of that, that as we grow in our knowledge of what Christ has accomplished, it affects our behavior and our way of life and our morality because we're aware of what Christ did. Yeah? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. In Romans, doesn't I know you had a wig on last night. You're not ma'am. Don't, don't. I'm sorry. I was talking to Kellen, who had a wig on last night. I got home and I, I got home and told my wife last night that the only woman I checked out at the party turned out to be a man. So. <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry, Renee. Doesn't Romans kind of tell us how to behave as Christians? Romans? Undoubtedly. And the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, 3, God, God, God. God did it all. God's electing grace. God's foreknowledge. Chapter 4, 5, 6, be like this. Act like this. So it's throughout the Bible. I would say it's unavoidable, except that people seem to avoid it all the time. It's part of the whole counsel of God. Yeah. I was just going to point out that it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do any of that part of, throughout the whole process. No doubt. No doubt. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to do it, proven by the fact that before we were saved, we would never have thought to act like that. But now that we are regenerated, now that we are born again, we read this stuff and it doesn't bother us. We think, yes, I want to be better. I constantly want to be better. I have that goal of godliness in my life, which is why it's so good to know that Paul would also say in Romans 7 that, that there's a law in the members of his body, that, that sin is in his body, and what he would do, he ends up not doing. What he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing. That's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. But then he doesn't leave it at, okay, flesh wins. Peter picks it up and says, now, knowing that you are God's, add all diligence to trying to be, to acting this way, to being better as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. So I would say it's part and parcel of one big effect, which is you're in Christ, you're going to grow in knowledge and your understanding of doctrine, and you're knowing what God did for you before the foundation of the world, but part of that same package is it's going to affect your behavior and your way of thinking and your mode of life and how you parent and what kind of mate you are and how you deal with your employees. It's going to affect every category of your life, including your 
knowledge and moral excellence. Well, I can't pick out the verse, but it says definitely faith that works with love. I took that to mean that only faith that works with love is viable. I agree. I agree. Especially when Peter gets to the end of the list and says, add to your brotherly kindness, love. Yeah, love. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. At the very beginning of this section in verse 5, he says to add to or supply to your faith these things. So that's implying that you already have the faith. You start with faith. Right. You have to have the faith in Christ. And where did the faith come from, according to Peter? He said, you were provided the same faith as I have. So it's God who supplies the faith. Since you have the faith, then supply these things. Yeah, absolutely. God is still the first cause, right? You can't escape that reality. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, after all of that, he says, now in conclusion, now that I've said all that, let me make one more point based on all that. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Remember what Megan said earlier. These things don't come naturally to us, so we have to be told. And we have to be told. (laughs) Told all the time. Reminded all the time. That's why sometimes you will walk into church and I or any other preacher will say something you've heard a hundred times in your life. But you'll hear it and it'll be brand new to you. And you'll say, man, I'm glad I heard that. I needed that today. Because you need to be reminded by God's word, continually reminded, continually brought along in the faith. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. These are things you know, but I'm going to tell you again. And next time I see you, I'm going to tell you again. I'm going to keep reminding you because you need to know these things. So even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. So notice what he just said. You've been established in the truth. You already know the doctrine of the finished work of Christ. You already know God choosing you since before the foundation of the world. You've got that knowledge of what Christ has done in paying for your sinfulness. You've got all that. But even though you've got all that, you still need to be reminded how to behave. You have an adversary. You have an adversary, and he's you. (laughs) Because you're going to get up tomorrow and forget what kind of people you are. So you need to be reminded. Regularly reminded. And I consider it, verse 13, and I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter says, yes, I'm going to nag you. Yes, I'm going to bring it up again and again and again. Yes, I'm going to keep on reminding you. But you know what? It's right that I do that. It's right that I keep reminding you. And as long as I have breath, as long as I'm in this earthly tabernacle, this dwelling place of dust, 
I'm still going to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. Peter said, I know I'm about to die. I know it's coming. Now, next week, we will look into that a little deeper because Jesus took the time to actually tell him to prophesy to him the type of death he was going to die. But we'll look into that next week. I know that my departure is at hand, he says, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. So the reason he keeps reminding them, the reason he's going to keep saying it over and over as long as he has breath is because eventually he's going to die. He's not going to be here anymore. And they're going to be able to say, remember what Peter said? Remember what Peter kept telling us? So he's going to drive these points home because his death is imminent. And that's where we will start next week. Peter is also going to identify himself next week as one of the eyewitnesses. He's going to say, we're not just making up fairy tales here. I'm not just making this stuff up off the top of my head. I actually saw the glory of Christ. I actually learned from Christ. And I'm telling you, be this way because this is what I learned from Christ. This is not a carefully devised fable we're making up. We are eyewitnesses to the reality of what Christ accomplished and what Christ taught. Therefore, we ought to give all the more urgent heed to what he said. Because here he is, 2,000 years later, still reminding us. Still saying it over and over. And I say the job of the preacher is to say what the Bible says and just keep reminding you. All right? All right. No, I would say, are there any questions? But I think we kind of got the questions as we were going along. They were all good questions across the board. Good input, good comments. I appreciate it very much. Anybody got a closing remark? Anything? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.